All right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to lesson four of Supernatural. Now, this is a bittersweet lesson. Why do I say that? Because it's the fourth lesson, but it's the last one. It's the last one for this, for this course, for this series. And we have saved the best for last, including the worst joke for last. Now, they tell a joke about a politician who gets hit by a bus and he, um, he goes up to heaven. And in heaven, he's greeted by, uh, uh, by a committee of angels. And the angels say to him the following, we're doing something new. We're trying something new. Instead of us determining who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, you're going to decide yourself. That's the new thing. Yeah, because like, it's all about choice. We're giving, we're giving the, uh, the user, the, the one who's experiencing it, we're giving them the, um, uh, the choice for the experience. You get to choose whether or not you want, hey, Good afternoon, welcome, welcome. You can choose whether you want to go to heaven or whether you want to go to hell. So he says, what kind of choice is that? That's crazy, it's Meshuggah. Who would choose? They're like, no, listen, try it out. Good afternoon, good to see you. Uh, they, so they say, try it, angels. Tell this guy, this politician, try it out. See what you like, and then you will make a decision from there. So the first thing he does is he takes the down elevator to... Where do you think the down? Good to see you, Tracy. Welcome, welcome. Where's the, where's the down elevator to? To hell. He gets there. The first thing he sees, all of his old buddies, all the politicians who he knows from, you know, the older guy, the older generation. He sees all the guys. He says, hey, how's it going? They're like, it's great down here. It's great. It's not as hot as they say. He's like, what are you guys doing today? They're playing golf. He joins them on the golf course. They go out to eat at a restaurant. In the evening, they go to a club, they have some drinks, they listen to some music. It's fabulous. Hell is underrated. It's a, fanta- it's a fantastic experience. All right, so they, t- oh, they told them you spend 24 hours in each, and then you make your decision. So 24 hours is done, and then he heads, in the up, uh, he heads up in the elevator to heaven. The elevator doors open, and there's heaven, and it's bright, and it's white, and it's pristine, and it's beautiful, and it's angelic, and there's some classical music playing, some really serene classical music. Clouds, angels, and other beings floating on clouds playing harp. I don't know if that's playing harp. I don't know how to play harp, but maybe something like that. <laughs> and and that's, that's what's going on. And he spends 24 hours there, and he has a good time. But it's a little boring. So the angels come to him afterwards. The head angel says to him, No, Mr. Politician, did you make your decision? What would you like, heaven or hell? He says, I can't believe I'm saying this. I never thought I would. But you know what? Hell's more fun. Take me to hell. They say, no problem. Your wishes are command. Gets back in the elevator, goes down, the door opens, and everything is red, and it's hot. And there's shouts and screams, and it's horrible. It's everything you imagine hell would be. It's, hor- it's horrific. And he turns around to the angel and says, what's going on? I was just here a few days ago. It was nothing like this. They said to him, ah, a few days ago. That's when we were campaigning. But now we have your vote already. We don't need to uphold our promises. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't promise good jokes. I just promise... Something resembling a joke. So there's a lot of jokes about angels and heaven, etc. Today we're going to look at all of these, what I, what I would call alternate or alternative life forms. Angels, demons, 
ghosts, spirits, souls, and as an added bonus. Remember that? Remember that movie from the 80s? E.T. Extraterrestrials at no extra charge. That is today's conversation. It's going to be magnificent. Just to kind of get in the flow of things. Last week, we looked at the notion of curses and the evil eye. And what we discovered, what we discovered is that Judaism seems to validate the power of curses and the evil eye. Um, The way it works is that curses verbally and the evil eye um, uh, using thought emit, number one, emit negative energy that could harm the other and harm oneself. Number two, it can elicit divine judgment on the other or on oneself. And number three, it also can reveal that the recipient may be a little too public, flaunting their blessings, which might also be detrimental to their own well-being. Um, the, the way to counter curses and the evil eye, we said last week, the way to do that is using some traditional methods of, uh, of counter, can I call it counter voodooism? I don't know if that's the right term. But like red strings and amulets and kamias and mezuzot and um, chamsa spitting, right, etc. That's when kanaharas all day, all night, right? You can't take a can of to go. Bleyain Harab and Parah Joseph, etc. And then, number, that was number one. Number two, it's by plugging into the source of all energy, which of course is God Almighty. Use it through prayer, Torah study, and good deeds. In other words, like kind of charging up our spiritual energy to combat any negative energy. And number three, we said, the third option is, the third method is by being a little bit more discreet with our blessings. We don't have to put all of our blessings out there for the public and for others to be potentially jealous. Rather, we can live uh, in a discreet way as we cited from the Talmud. It says, Blessing resides in something that is low-key, a little bit hidden from the eye. So you want a blessing? Keep it on the down low. Blessings uh, cultivate under, kind of, uh, you know, under the table as it were. All right, so today we talk about our final conversation. We have our final topic, and as I said before, it's alternative life forms. Alternative life forms. I'm talking about, again, angels, demons, ghosts, spirits, souls, extraterrestrials. If you've ever wondered if they're real and if they are real, what are they and what do they do and do they interact with us and how do they affect us and why would they exist if they do exist and what does Judaism have to say about it, well, today is your day. Today is your day to find out all of these, uh, all of these things and all these paranormal and, um, and extra, um, <laughs> extraterrestrial phenomena. So our lesson will take place and will unfold in three acts. Act number one, angels in the outfield. Act number two, who are you going to call? <laughs> exactly. And act number three, in a galaxy far, far away. All right, hope you're ready. Buckle up, it's going to get wild. Let's begin. All right, as always, what I'd like to do is get your input and get your perspective on the topics that we're going to address. So by raise, we'll go through this very quickly. By raise of hand, do a quick uh, strapple, hand pull, whatever. By raise of hand, do you believe in angels? Angels, 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 angels. Oh, okay, good. Do you believe in, oh, now it's not a yes or no question. What are angels? No right, no right answer, no wrong answer. Sorry, maybe there is a right answer. No wrong answer, just what, it, first thing that comes to mind, angels. Watch over us, guardian angels, what else? What are angels? Messengers, good. Extension. Oh, I'm sorry. No worries, extension? 
extension of God. Extension of God, okay. Protection. Protection, good. Angels, angels, angels. That's true. That is true. All right, next question. Do you believe in, Paul, do you believe in, uh, de uh, yeah, demons? Do you believe in demons? Ooh. I have to say yes because something's happened to me. Okay, well, hold that thought. I'm going to hear about that a little bit later. Demons. Yes, no, no. Huh. We're all my demon people. Come on, guys. All right, fine. Um, do you believe in ghosts? Ghosts. Okay. You know the rumor that this place is haunted. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, joking. Joking. Right, for sure. Only for good. Right, that's what I meant. Um, what if you believe in ghosts or are curious about ghosts? What do you think ghosts are? Souls. Souls. Ah, good. Okay. All right, we'll get back to that later. This is well. Right, that is true. That is true. Um, what about spirits? Do you believe in spirits? Are they the same as ghosts? Different? Same? Okay. Okay. Do you believe that there is intelligent life on other planets? Yes. By raise of hand. Yes? Oh, okay. Fantastic. Good. Do you believe, well, let me ask further. Do you believe that intelligent life on other planets, that, that, that they have made contact with our world at some point? Yes. You're, you're unsure. Okay, that's a valid answer. Okay, good. All right, excellent. I'm very excited about today's discussion. All right, so what's interesting is that uh, poll after poll, survey after survey has demonstrated that a large majority of Americans, and every country is different, but large majority of Americans do believe in the existence of alternative life forms, like ghosts, demons, angels, spirits, um, and extraterrestrial life. Um, and, and it's a significantly larger number than the number of Americans that believe in the power of astrology or curses. It's interesting. And I think that maybe it's because these are phenomenon or phenomena that are felt more viscerally, perhaps. People have experiences. I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard about people's encounter with, let's just for the, let's, I'll just say this broadly, spirits of another kind. It is, I, I mean, just story after story. And it's incredible. So I think people have experiences that they find it hard to explain without explaining it as uh, some other worldly force that is interacting with our world. And so I think that a lot of people have a, um, including many of us around this table, have a belief in one or more of these, of these um, forms of life that we're going to speak about today. So as I said before, it's, we're going to speak about the Jewish perspective on all of the above and come to understand why it is that we seem to feel these energies, otherworldly energies, around us so often. All right, let's begin with angels. Angels are going to be uh, first up in today's, uh, today's topic. So let's, let's mention this right off the bat. Traumatic pause. And that is that Judaism speaks extensively on the topic of angels. There is no shortage to the conversation of angels in Judaism. In fact, when you look at scripture, i.e. Torah itself, when you look at the Midrash, when you look at Talmud, when you look at Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, you will find mention after mention after mention of angels. Angels are like just hanging off the page in all these books, all these scrolls. But what exactly are angels? Where do they come from? What do they do? Where do they hang out? Do they interact with us? 
Do we actually have guardian angels or is that just something that we imagine that we have? So let's start exploring angels inside. Now the first big thing you need to know about angels from a Jewish perspective is that angels are by, by their very essence non-material beings, which means very simply, you know the, um, the stereotypical image of angels as kind of white beings with fluffy wings or just floating around maybe with a bow and arrow on some, <laughs> on some holidays, right? Did I get that right? Cupid or whatever. Is that, is that an angel? Is Cupid an angel? No, that's Cupid. Is it an angel? Yeah. All right, whatever. It's, it's an angel? <sighs> maybe also. Yeah. Hey, Mindy. So that image of angels as white fluffy beings, that is not the Jewish perspective. Now, I have to say, um, if you look through the writings, through the book of, uh, through the book of Ezekiel, or the book of Isaiah, when they talk about the, the, the vision of the divine chariot known as the Merkava, you will find an ex, a, a description of angels in very corporeal terms. You'll find a description of angels in um, very materialized um, uh, form. Nonetheless, our tradition understands these descriptions as mere metaphor and not literal. Now, let's begin. Let's see this inside. Text Number one, page 115, text one. Here we have Rambam, Maimonides, on the topic of angels. Henrietta, if you'd like to take this away. Sure. God created in his world beings that are spiritual and have no material substance. These, these are the angels which have nobody or physical figure. They are spiritual entities. What are we to make of the prophet's description that they saw an angel of fire or with wings? These are all prophetic visions and they serve as parables. We find such a figurative illustration in the verse, God is a consuming fire. God is not fire and the description of him in this manner is metaf metaphoric. Similarly, the verse states he makes his angels like winds, using wind as a metaphor. Since, since they possess nobody, in what manner are each of the angels distinct from each, from each other? They are distinct in the sense that no two angels have an identical spiritual composi composition. They are on the chain like... I'm sorry, I have... Continuum. They are on the chain-like con con continuum, one higher than the other, each sustaining that which is lower than it. They all exist by God's power and benevolence. Thank you. So there's a lot to unpack in this reading. And by the way, just so you know, this reading comes from Maimonides' Mishneh Torah, which is his book of Jewish law. So this is not his philosophical books, which I'm not discounting, I'm just saying it's not a philosophical um, treatment. This is a Jewish legal treatment, and it's found in Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, the laws of the foundations of Torah, and he describes angels. And essentially, he applies to angels the same type of qualification that we, that we, that we ascribe to God himself. The Torah refers to God in very, in very physical terms. God said, God's mouth God's eyes, God's hand, right? It says God's eyes are upon the land. God saved us with his outstretched arm. It does not mean that God possesses a physical body. 
rather, so God is, the one thing we know about God, one of the things we know about God is that God is non-corporeal, i.e. doesn't have a body, doesn't have physical form, nothing material about God whatsoever. All of these descriptions then are mere metaphors, just like if someone were to rescue someone else, they would probably use their hand to rescue them. So when God rescues the Jewish people, not through a physical hand, we say that God uses outstretched arm, not that God actually has an arm, but that's the language that we use. Or when God communicates, however that happens, right, God um, projects information to a prophet or whatever, God is speaking. Is God actually speaking? Is a voice actually emanating? That one could put on a tape recorder. What is a tape recorder? Who knows? Whatever, on a back then, right? On a recorder and listen to? Not necessarily. Why does it use the language of speech and mouth and words? Because that's how we communicate. So it's almost speaking in our language because we don't have another language outside of our own experience. Point is, Maimonides describes the same qualification to angels, although when you open up books of scripture, you find that angels are described as having wings or being composed of fire, or being in the shape of a wheel. Ophanim, angels are wheel-like angels. So um, those are the wheel angels. Anyway, so the point here is, the point here is that though they, they don't actually possess those physical forms because angels are spiritual beings that don't have physical form. Now you might be thinking, well, what happens when an angel visits earth? We'll talk about that soon. But angels in their pure setting in heaven do not have physical form. By the way, a little Kabbalah, a little Kabbalah. Kabbalah speaks of four spiritual worlds. The world of Atzilut, emanation, Briah, creation, Yitzirah, formation, and Asiyah, action, the world that we live in. We live in the lower half of the world of action. But here's the, 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 the relevant thing to know. What's germane for our discussion is that angels are said to exist in the realms of Yitzirah and Briah, the second and third worlds in this chain of four, those middle two worlds. Different angels at different rungs. Some are more emotional, some are more intellectual, i.e. some feel more, some understand more. These are beings that essentially are spiritual beings possessing no body. What differentiates, my mind is asked, what differentiates one from the other? As I said, Different statuses, different, different functions, different purposes. But the, 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 what differentiates one from the other is not something that can be physically quantified. It's something that is more of a spiritual um, definition. Make sense? So far, so good? Okay. That's the basic, that's the first point to mention about angels. Now, the second big thing to know about angels is that angels play different roles in the universe. Angels have different roles. They wear different hats, let's say. Not physical hats, but they, they have different uh, um, uh, roles and functions, depending on what's going on. So let's talk about three of them, not necessarily the only three, but three distinct roles that angels might play um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Number one, angels are, as their Hebrew name suggests, angels are, what is my, uh, the Hebrew word for angels are? Or is malachim? What, what does malach mean? What's the literal translation of malach? Not from halach. No, it's with aleph. Malach is with, yeah, it is with, with aleph. Mal, malach is um, a messenger. It's a messenger. So malachim, at their core, are messengers that carry um, energy from one place to the other. Think about it as 
the DoorDash of heaven. Oh, I have another. I don't need this one. The DoorDash of heaven. Heaven's DoorDash, or I don't know, Uber, whatever, whatever your favorite delivery uh, thing is. If it's food, Grubhub, Postmates, Uber Eats, whatever. But it's not about food. Um, the angels, their role number one, at least in the order that we're speaking today of, role number one is as a messenger, a carrier of energy from one space to another. Um, let's take a look at, actually before we get to a text about this, let me just give you an example. So imagine you have your phone and um, you want to convey information um, sorry, you want to type, but instead of typing, you want to use voice to text. You guys ever do that? Right? You, you hit the little microphone, you speak into your phone, and the next thing you know, it's typed out for you. And inevitably there are mistakes, but it's still pretty cool. It's still pretty cool. How does that work? How does that work? You ever wonder? How does that work? When you speak into your phone, how does it type it? Or your computer. Computers also have that. How does that work? Well, it's software, right? It's a software. What were we saying? Oh, no, I was just saying that each sound becomes a letter. Oh, so each sound, so the software works. First of all, it has a built-in microphone. Obviously, it's always listening. Yeah. Right? You ever have that experience where, like, you're scrolling Facebook and suddenly an ad pops up, something you were just speaking about, and then they're like, we don't listen in. Uh, sure you don't. Sure you don't. There's no way you could have guessed that. coming out of my mouth. I was eating the chocolate that popped up. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, then. And also a... I just, I just wonder if maybe it knows before you know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah, because yeah, maybe like the same reason why you got uh, excited about that thing at that moment is because of where you were and what other things that were happening. So maybe it's like, okay, well, one plus one equals two. I know what the next thing this person is going to do. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, back to the story. Back to voice of text. So it has a microphone built in. And you speak into your phone, and then it listens, right? The microphone picks up the, the sounds, converts it into data. So it's from, it's like analog, right? Your analog voice into digital, into digital voice. That digital voice is then converted into language using whatever language processing uh, software program that they have. And then it actually types it out on the screen in real time. And all of that happens instantaneously, which means, which means, that there is a mechanism or various mechanisms in between your voice and the text that carry the data through, i.e. make it happen, facilitate it, and get to that end result. Angels are very similar. So, for example, when we pray, it says that angels carry our prayers up to heaven and then bring down the blessing in return back down from heaven. Remember Jacob? Remember Jacob's ladder? So he, he, was, he was running away from home. His brother wanted to kill him. Long story. Anyway, he lies down to go to sleep, and he has a dream. And he doesn't realize that he's sleeping on the Temple Mount, but he has a dream. And what's the dream? He sees a ladder. There were four rungs. You know why four? Four worlds. Kabbalah says the same four worlds that I explained before. He's a four-rung ladder, and he sees the angels are going up the ladder and down the ladder. And I want to ask a klutzkasha. Klutzkasha means... It's such an obvious question that no one bothers to ask it. I'll be the guy to ask the question. If you're an angel, why are you, first of all, why do you need, an, why do you need a ladder? But second of all, that's another question. But second of all, why are you first going up and then going down? If you live in heaven, the first, thing you, the first direction is going down and then going back up. Right? Why are they going up first and then down? And so the answer that Kabbalah gives is that these were the angels that were carrying Jacob's prayers heavenward. 
So when we pray, to basically, just, just to connect the ideas that I'm trying to convey over here, um, to connect voice with text, you need something in between. You need a process in between. To connect heaven or earth and heaven, you also need stuff in between. And, and part of that process or part of that uh, mechanism by which energy flows from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth, part of that highway, if you will, is, uh, is filled with angels that are moving that along. Again, if you're picturing fluffy winged creatures, then that's, that's, that's never going to work because that's not what they look like. They don't look like anything. Um, try to picture in your phone what that looks like, the software that translates voice to text. Picture it. Is it a fluffy winged creature? No, it's just software. Angels are spiritual software that move energy from one to the other. Not because they're amazing or they're cool or they figured it out, but because that's how God programmed them to behave. They are mere carriers of, of, of data up and down. So when Jacob prays, the symbol of that are the angels, is the angels that are going up, carrying his prayers heavenward, and then the angels coming down, translating that blessing down to our physical reality. So it's taking physical prayers and translating them, them uh, into heaven speak, and then translating heavenly blessings into physical speak, as it were. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are they all just out there floating around, or does each of us have our own? We'll talk about that soon. Remember I said there are three roles of angels. So this is only role number one. In this, uh, for this genre of angels, they exist almost as a pipeline between heaven and earth and also within the heavenly realms itself. Just the way that energy moves, packets of, of, of spiritual data move back and forth, all of that is through the medium, as it were, of the angels. So that's basic uh, function number one. Yeah. Don't they have one leg that they can't move they can't like walk to do it's not literally one leg because they don't have any legs right they don't have a physical form but it's 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 no no no. we it it is described as one leg but it's again it's not literally one leg because they don't have a physical body the way we understand it yeah but they they can't walk either way the plane they can't fly they don't they don't right they're not they're not of a physical form angels are described as having one leg in the sense that they are stationary. They're very much locked into the way they were created. Human beings are dynamic. We can surprise ourselves. We, can, we have free choice. We can do something radically different than, we, than what we did yesterday or the day before. Right? We, can, we can literally surprise ourselves and do something incredible. Angels are very much locked into their function, their role, their mission, their purpose. Um, yeah, let's look at Text number two. You know what, Mindy, read this one, please. Text number two, speaking of angels, here is a description of the first role of angels that we're speaking of. The word for angel, malach, means emissary. The malachim serve as emissaries that transmit God's creative energy to sustain the worlds and all that they contain. Emissaries speak nothing of their own. They merely convey the message their principle has given them. Similarly, the malachim are merely conduits to transmit the flow from its source to the recipients. There are also Malachim who serve as emissaries on behalf of the Jewish people, collecting their good deeds and spiritual inspiration and bringing them before God. Regarding the angels that receive the prayers, the Zohar teaches that they are needed because it is impossible for physical sounds and words to ascend to heaven and become subsumed in the divine source 
without them first being refined by the angel. The Malachim aren't independent beings. They are merely tools of the divine light that is within them. So that's a little bit about angels. Ooh. It's kind of cool, right? Yeah. There's a few different ideas that are woven into that reading, but hopefully uh, the core idea, the core, ele- the core energy of, of angels is coming through. They're non-physical, non-material beings, beings of spiritual light, of divine energy. They, they serve as emissaries. They have a specific role. They are conduits of energy between heaven and earth and within heaven itself. And pretty much they don't go outside of their intended or, or created purpose. Hence the one leg. You can't get around too far with one leg. They don't really move, again, not physically. They don't really move away from their originally created space. Human beings, we're all over the place. Not just physically, right? Some days we're, we're plugged in, some days we're not so plugged in. Angels are very consistent. It's like, it's, you know what to expect when you're dealing with an angel. So what's the concept that, I don't know where it comes from, but it says that the devil like, revolted against, you know what I mean? Like he oh, excellent question, excellent question. Can angels or do angels have free choice? Can they abdicate their divine mission and go rogue. Can angels go rogue? That's your question. It seems like I wasn't planning on bringing it up because it raises questions that I don't have the answer to, but it seems like in some sources, what you're saying is reflected. It seems like in some sources, some angels have or do have the power on some level to go a little bit outside of their, uh, their original intention. But typically, and, and the question is, well then, but if angels are only mere points of divine light that don't have free choice, don't have their own autonomy, then how is that possible? I don't have a good answer for that. Um, But maybe some angels are created a little bit different than others. But it seems like the vast majority of angels are more uh, uh, um, along the lines of what we've been discussing, where they they don't have that that ability to choose. They don't have that that agency that human beings have. Where does the angel of death fall into any of this? Angel of death would fall on, well, it's good. A, a good question. Angel of death might be in one of the other roles that angels play. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing to remember is that the angel of death is not doing something that it has not been commanded or mandated to do. It's also a messenger. So if we're translating angel, first and foremost, as malach, which means shliach, which means messenger. So one thing to know about the angel of death is that it is just doing its job. Right? It's... Um, the IRS. I'm kidding. Right, but it's just, just doing its job, right? That's... Don't that's, shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> exactly. Imagine having that job. Oof. Wow. What a job. Okay, now that is, that, is one, uh, that is one role of angels. Now let's talk about a second role of angels. Now in addition to being carriers of divine energy and divine light throughout the cosmos and between heaven and earth... Angels also have, and I mentioned this before, they do have some measure of intellectual awareness and a sense of emotional awareness as well. Some have more IQ, some have more EQ, but either way, angels are aware of their environment and they're also aware of their source. And because they have a heightened appreciation of their divine source, that's why, and this is something that I'm sure you're all familiar with, that's why the angels are very often in a state of praise of Hashem, praise of God. What's the famous uh, refrain that the angels say? 
Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. Right? And that is, and the reason why, Kabbalah explains the reason why they say Kadosh three times is to, is to almost indicate their perception of how beyond God is from where they are. God is Kadosh, 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 like three levels, if not more, removed from their, from their reality. So although angels are spiritual beings, they recognize that God, i.e. the source, is way beyond their level, their, their status. Um, and it's something that we mention every day in the prayers. We say that. We say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. We talk about the praise of the angels. In fact, look at text number four, if you will. Rachel, please read this one. This comes from the Kedusha. This comes from the, the little uh, um, call and repeat that's done uh, during the repetition of the Amida every single day. Please take it away. We will hallow and adore you as the sweet words of the assembly of the holy angels who thrice repeat holy unto you as if it's written by your prophet. And they call one to another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that's Isaiah says that that is what the angels are doing. Part of what the angels are doing is uh, praising God and saying, Holy, 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 etc. What does that mean? It means that in addition to the angels fulfilling their specific task that they've been entrusted, they can't help themselves but be in awe of the source because they feel the source. But here's the kicker. We mention this in the prayers every single morning, every day, weekday, Shabbat, holidays, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, no matter what day it is, we're talking about the angels. And this is just one example. The question is, why in our tefillot, in our prayers, why are we recalling what the angels are doing? Let the angels do the angels. And we should be praying to God directly. And why, why are we evoking or mentioning how the angels relate to God? And so there's a beautiful insight that I want to share with you, which is the second, um, the second message about angels that I wish to relate. And that is that when we recall the angels praising God and the angels standing in awe of their divine source, of their godly source, it reminds us of how small we are and how great God is. If the angels, who are these towering spiritual beings, if they're in awe of God, if they can't, a mad, if they can't fathom God's greatness, how much more so can we not fathom God's greatness? Right? It's like if you see a great person, someone that you respect, respecting someone else, you're like, well, how much more so should I respect that other? If my mentor respects that person, how much more so should I respect the mentor of my mentor? And in this case, God is not just their mentor. Of course, God is way beyond. So we mention in the prayers to remind ourselves of God's greatness and God's grandeur, etc. If, if the angels are blown away by God, well then, the meditation goes and follows, maybe we should too. <laughs> but sometimes, the more aware you are, the more you can feel it, the less aware. I mean, what are we aware of? We're aware of, I don't know, carpool and, uh, and you know, shopping and whatever, whatever is in our heads and lunch. But, you know, the angels are aware of God, and so they're thinking about God. But the idea is to shift our mindset to also be, um, to also be in that space of, um, of feeling and, and being aware of God. The final role of angels that we'll speak of in this section are angels that, uh, that assume and acquire some sort of physical form for a very specific role that they will play for any given moment. Now, there are many biblical examples of this. 
one thing, one caveat. Maimonides said that angels by nature are non-material and do not possess physical form. That's true. But they can also assume physical form if the moment calls for it, if the task is necessary. And so what we have here are examples. In the Torah, many examples of where we see um, angels um, assuming physical form and having an impact on this world. Please turn your books to page 122 and 123. I'll go through this very quickly. We're not going to read each word here, but just some highlights from the Torah. Um, Hagar, or Hagar. So we, I think we mentioned her in a previous class. So she was, um, she was Sarah's handmaid. Sarah could not conceive and, and get pregnant. So Sarah gives Hagar, or Hagar, to Avram, to Abraham. Um, she conceives... And then, um, and Sarah is upset, so she kicks, she kicks her out, and she's wandering. And I mentioned, uh, I think the last time we did this, I think I mentioned that she miscarried. Did I mention that? I mentioned that. Okay, she miscarried. Um, but anyway, uh, an angel of God finds her then at that at that moment and says, "It's okay. Things have calmed down. Back at, back at the ranch, you can go back to Abraham and Sarah. You can go back to the house." She goes back. Okay. Then years later. Over a decade later, so she now, she's given birth, to, she got pregnant again, she gave birth to Ishmael, and um, at this point, um, Sarah, and Sarah had given birth to Isaac, and Sarah felt that, that Ishmael um, was a negative influence on her son Isaac, so again she kicks out Hagar, with her son this time, Ishmael, and Ishmael is dying of thirst, there's no water, and an angel appears and says, don't worry, here's a supply of water, your son will be fine, and your son is blessed. So here we have an example in a biblical story in Genesis where angels make an appearance. Next, the next famous example is Abraham and Sarah's guests. Three angels dressed up or under the, in the guise of men appear, to Abraham's, appear at Abraham's door, Abraham and Sarah's door at their tent. And um, it says in the, in the good books that each of these three was to, was to perform a different task, had a different role. One angel was to heal Abraham uh, after, this was after his circumcision three days later. One was to heal Abraham of the circumcision pain. The second was to bring good news about the birth of Isaac. And the third was to overturn the city of Sodom, or the cities of Sodom and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. So there were three angels. Again, we see angels facilitating things on earth and assuming physical form. Well, these same angels go to Lot, Abraham's nephew. When they overturn Sodom, they show up at Lot's house and he invites them in. And they ultimately end up rescuing Lot and his wife. And they tell Lot's wife to do what? Not to do what? Turn around. What does she do? That's it. The next thing you know, pillar of salt. Anyway, so again, angels facilitating stuff on earth. Next, Jacob wrestles with an angel. 123, Jacob wrestles with an angel. The night before Jacob's faithful encounter with his twin brother, Esau, Esau, Jacob has a wrestling match with this mysterious figure. We understand that it was uh, Esau's, Esau's guardian angel, which we haven't spoken about yet, guardian angel um, who was assuming physical form. Um, we also have in the, in, the, in the Torah a story about Balaam, the prophet, the evil prophet for prophet. Remember that guy? Bilam. Bilam. Bilam, or in English it's Balaam. So Bilam 
um, is riding on his donkey to, to go to curse, to attempt to curse the Jewish people, and an angel stands in the way of the donkey, and three times the donkey stops or, or, or adjusts himself, and then Bilaam gets upset, the, the prophet gets upset, until his eyes are open and he sees the angel standing in the way with his sword. Um, and finally, I'm not going to do Gideon's guardian angel. There's the one with the wife of Manoah, or Manoah, you know this one? So um, uh, they, they, she, was, she, she had not been able to give birth, and this man who's an angel appears to her, um, this angel in the form of a man appears to her and says, you will become pregnant, you will have a son, and you need to take very special care of him, not to cut his hair, don't give him any wine, uh, make sure he doesn't come in contact with death, etc., and make, make him a Nazar, a Nazarite. Um, this, of course, was the, um, uh, the foretelling of the birth of who? Who was the famous, strong Jewish warrior who didn't cut his hair? Samson, right? Shimshon, Hagibar, Samson the Mighty. This was the communication, the communicata that came from the angel uh, to Manoah's wife. It's funny because she goes home, tells her husband, this guy, this angel comes to me and says, we're going to have a child. And he says, I don't believe it. So the next day, he appears again. This time the wife calls the husband. The husband comes out and says, oh, wow. And then and here's the news himself. Now he believes I don't know, guys have to trust their wives more, whatever. Um, and anyway, and then this man disappears, like floats to heaven. And he's like, oh my gosh, this was an angel of God. We will surely die, this is what he says. And his wife says, why would we die? He literally promised us a child. How does that make any sense? It's just funny. It's literally the story, the way it's written in, 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 in the book of Judges. Just a funny story. All right, um, so anyway, that's another example of angels assuming physical form. So angels can assume physical form for very specific tasks. By nature, they don't have physical form, but again, they can shapeshift per God's command and assume that physical form. Now, there are other instances where angels also have an influence on us and show up at our doors. One example is not only for very special people like Abraham and Jacob and Samson's mom, etc., but angels show up every week to our homes, every Friday night. We even sing a song to the angels. What's that song called? Shalom Aleichem. Take a look at text number five. Lisa, please read this one. It's on page 120. We're turning back to page 120. Text number five. This is coming from Zohar, the primary work of Kabbalah. Uh, when we return from synagogue, the angels accompany us on each side while divine presence hovers over us, and the angels, as if we entered our homes with joy and receive guests with joy. And if, behind, if upon arrival, the angels and the divine presence, of, we see the candles lit, the table is set, and the husband and wife both joyous. At, the, at this moment, the divine presence says, this is mine, Israel, in which I take pride. Thank you. So what we see here is that angels accompany us to our homes Friday night, to our Shabbat, uh, to our Shabbat tables. It's a very special thing. And, of course, because of that, we sing the Shalom Aleichem. Let's sing it. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharet, Malachi Elyon. We'll suffice with the first stanza. And you can see the translation there. We're not going to read the English inside, but you can read it for yourself. 
You say, peace unto you, ministering angels, messengers of the Most High, of the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One Blessed Be. In other words, we're welcoming, literally we're welcoming the angels to our Shabbat table. It's kind of cool because angels are assuming, even if we can't see it, they're assuming some sort of earthly form or some form that is present at our Shabbat tables. By the way, who composed Shalom Aleichem? <laughs> that would kind of be cool. No, there was an author, Shalom Aleichem, but he did not compose Shalom Aleichem. Actually, the authorship is unknown. That was a trick question. We don't know who authored Shalom Aleichem. Um, it was first published in a book in 1612, in a book of uh, Tukunei Shabbat, a book containing prayers and songs for Shabbat. That's the first known publication of the prayer Shalom Aleichem, but scholars don't actually know who Ended, who composed it? The tune was written, the tune that we just sang, that was composed in the year 1918 by American composer and conductor Rabbi Israel Goldfarb, um, who's a rabbi in New York. So that famous song is a little over 100 years old. Kind of cool. What were they, how did they sing it before? I don't know. Maybe they just read it. Um, and finally, we're going to speak about guardian angels. So angels, so just to recap, angels can come down for one-off missions. Angels can appear at our homes or do appear at our homes every Friday night. And of course, we have this idea of guardian angels as well. Joel, please take it away. Which one, seven? Taya, text number seven, please. A person who does one mitzvah is given one angel. One who does two mitzvahs is given two angels. One who does all the mitzvahs is given many angels. As it is said, he will assign his angels to you. Who are these angels? They are the ones who guard the person against harmful demonic forces. Yeah, so what we see here is that there, that there is this existence or there is this notion of, uh, of guardian angels. So if somebody asks you, does Judaism believe in guardian angels? What's the answer? Absolutely. So again, angels can appear to special individuals. They can appear every Friday night or they can be at your side as a product of good deeds um, and, uh, and good energy. Every good thing that we say and good thing that we do creates an instance of positive energy. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue and talk about demons because it just men mentioned that the, the, the guardian angels guard against harmful demonic forces. Hold on, does that imply that Judaism believes in demons? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> kind of implies that, right? So let's take a look at the Jewish definition of demons. This is text number eight on page 124. This comes from Mishnah Avot. Uh, uh, Dalit, please read this one, text number eight. Ten things were created during the twilight of Friday, the final day of creation. Some say that the destructive demonic forces were also created at this time. So it's interesting, the Mishnah lists 10 things that were created, Bein Hashmashot. What is Bein Hashmashot? It means that twilight time between Friday night and Shabbat. Remember, God created for six days, on the seventh day he rested. So anything created in that twilight time is kind of created, kind of not created, kind of of this world, but kind of not of this world. So that is a that is a either a literal or a metaphoric, I'm not sure which one exactly, a, a way to describe things that are a little bit otherworldly. And one of the otherworldly things that the Mishnah says was created at that time are the mazikin. Mazikin means the destructive forces, but it's referring to the destructive demonic forces in existence. 
clearly it seems that there is, uh, that there is the existence of these types of negative energies, negative energies that, are, um, that, that can cause harm and wreak havoc on the world. Um, one thing to highlight at the, at the very get-go is that these demons are also created by God, which means that this is like we, somebody asked about the angel of death before, right? The angel of death is likewise in God's employ. There's, Judaism is very strictly monotheistic, which means that nothing exists outside of God's purview. So if something exists, it's under the, it's in the org chart, it's still under the one CEO at the top, which is God. It's not like there's God plus this other force, and they're duking it out. That's not, mono, that's not Jewish monotheism. Jewish monotheism is there's one thing at the top, one being at the top, God, and everything else flows from there, including angel death, including the mazikin, including the, what we call the shadim, these demonic forces. Now let's continue with text number nine. Denise, please read this one, page 125. All right, so now we know more about demons. <laughs> Look at that. So this is what Ramban Nachmanri says about demons. So just to summarize, because there's a lot of information there. He says, number one, why are they called Shadim? Shadim because they live in desolate places. Like that old uh, closet that you don't go into. I'm kidding. Right, uh, sorry. Like the desert. Or like the North Pole. You notice he goes to the North Pole with this. Fascinating. He's like, either they like hot or cold climate. That's what it seems like, yeah. So then why do they always refer to it as the heat, like hell and the demonic forces are always, you know, in the bowels of the earth. Right. So, you know, always so, the fire and the heat and the lava. I, so that's a great question. I have that question as well. Um, and I don't know if even with this description, if he's trying to describe it in a way that's very physical and very corporeal, very um, tangible. Because again, the demonic forces would be similar to angels in the sense that these are, non, that these are ethereal, non-material beings. A, a, a demon is not a physical being that possesses a body. So even as he describes it as a combination of the elements of fire and air, I don't know that he's describing phys like a physical fire air ball flying through the air. I don't think that's what he's describing. Like a spiritual composite of these energies that is forming these demons, whether they exist exclusively in those spaces or not, whether they're limited by time and space, I don't know. It's a very, I, I, I don't know that I can answer. I think it's a, you're asking a good question, but I think it's, it's a little bit less tangible than we think. In fact, the last sentence he says, the angel's form is intangible. And because they're so that they can fly with the fire and wind, uh, fly with the fire and wind, I don't think they're actually, I don't think you can capture it on, like, on camera. Although that will take us into our extraterrestrial conversation, which we'll talk about a little bit later, about UFOs and flying objects. But for right now, I would, I would try to picture, for myself, I'm picturing this, uh, these shadim um, as, uh, as like, like angels, like very, um, very non-material, very ethereal, um, and, uh, and things that have... Um, a very specific 
uh, function, which is to, I don't know, to cause harm or to cause negativity to happen in the world. I mean, negative things happen. And so the question is, how is that facilitated? If angels are carrying messages back and forth in a light and in a positive way, so there's a force likewise that's carrying, you know, the negative stuff. I mean, the world is not all, it's not all uh, um, blessings, unfortunately. And what carries that negativity are these things that we call shadim or mazikin, things that cause things that cause damage. Now, but isn't it weird that he talks about the desert as a shadud place when most of Israel is a desert? I guess maybe when it's cultivated, maybe they're kicked out. I don't know. I, I don't know how to, I, I struggle with how to understand this. We're presenting it because it's, there's not a lot of, uh, of other sources on it. So I'm just trying, we're trying to put together, you know, the sources that we do have. But when it says that they reside in the desert, is it like out in the open, behind the cactus? Like where exactly in a sand dune? I don't know. If the desert gets developed, do they bounce? I don't know. Are they exclusively in these places or are they in the bowels of the earth? I don't know. That's a question also about Gehenna, also about purgatory, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Is it a physical place? Is it a spiritual place? Is Gan Eden, is paradise, a physical location or is it a spiritual you know, condition? Or state of mind or state of being, exactly. So I think the less tangible we can think about these things, I think the more accurately we are thinking about these things. Um, by the way, one thing, uh, two things to keep in mind, lest we are, lest we become afraid of these shadim. Number one, they do not have their own independent will, like angels. Typically, they don't have their own independent will. It's not like they can just wreak havoc. It's all uh, whatever is happening is being sent uh, by God. They're just conduits for that. Um, if that's encouraging, then then that's encouraging. And um, and number two, number two. Oh, that was text 11. I just paraphrased text 11. It says demons have no power or strength, right? Don't need to engage with them. They don't have any independent ability to benefit or harm us. So no need to get too involved in our minds and our hearts and our feelings, whatever. Don't, don't get too wrapped up in, 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 in the, the realm of demons because they're just following God's orders. The second thing to, to, to keep in mind is something that the good books have brought down that according to our tradition, throughout the centuries, Great sages and mystics have, in their own way, vanquished many of these dark forces. So, for example, there's a tradition that one of the Talmudic sages, Abaya, pushed away some of these mazikim, some of these um, uh, demonic beings. Maimonides is rumored to have pushed some of these away. And the Bashem Tov is also rumored, or the, the legend goes, to have pushed some of these away. So, therefore, um, uh, there's less to be afraid of. Bottom line, demons may be a thing, but God is still in control, and they're less of a thing than maybe they were back in the day. Um, one lesson before we continue with, um, with ghosts. One thing to keep in mind about angels and demons, and maybe a takeaway lesson from this. Um, clearly, Judaism believes in the existence of both, but what, um, you know, what, what, what lesson does it hold for us if they're just doing their thing or we're doing our thing? One lesson is that even though each of them is fulfilling their task, they go about it in different ways, and that's the way they're programmed. Angels are conscious of their source, as we said before. They're always saying, holy, holy, holy. They're always aware of their source. And because of that, they give, and they give positivity. So they're aware of the source, and they give. The demons, on the other hand, they're less aware of source, and because of that, they cause, they wreak havoc. 
Um, and the message for us is, let's be more like the angels and not like the demons. In other words, the more we're aware of our source, the more likely we are to be an open conduit of sharing and blessing for others, as opposed to when we're less aware of our source, then we tend to hold on to things more, and that creates more friction in our lives, in our relationships, and just in general, the channel of blessing is a little bit closed when we are closed off into ourselves. When we live closed off from our source, it just creates a, uh, an energy of negativity, being open to the source, channel the, channeling the, the energy style of the, of the angels, being open and acknowledging of our source, just allows the blessings to flow a little bit more free, freely in our lives. All right, now, with that in mind, any questions on the above? Yeah. So far, yeah. So this might be in the next section, but where would a divic fit into this? <laughs> like, is that oh. a Next section. Or is that, okay. so, so a dibuk yes. um, is a, everybody familiar with that term, dibuk? Is a, um, well, we have to define it, that's part of the question. It's a, what was it, a book or a movie? What was it? It was a movie. It was yeah. a book and a movie. It was, yeah, but originally I think it was a book. It was a book, yeah. And then book and a movie. Box oh, well I've never seen that. Yeah. What is that? that? That this collector has now in Las Vegas, at a museum in Las Vegas. But um, if you look at stuff all over Google about it, that there was this Dybbuk box, and I guess it survived the Holocaust and supposedly anyone who's ever like opened this box like a lot of things have oh happened to them that <sighs> well fran online is joining us from las vegas so maybe fran can check out the dibuk box we're talking about a dip yeah apparently rachel's mentioning that there is a dibuk box yes. that a collector has in las vegas yeah. that if it's open huh I never heard of it. Where is this the book it's, box? There's a museum in Las Vegas. Museum, it's okay. A paranormal museum. A paranormal museum. Interesting. Probably okay. Shut. It's, yeah, I would. Yeah, do not open that. Yeah. Do not. I would not. I would not open that. Now, but what's a dibuk? So your question is: Is it a demon or is it something else? So a dibuk is a spirit that then dibuk means literally stuck. Like devek means right. How do you say glue in Hebrew? Devek. The book means stuck. It's a spirit that attaches itself to someone else and haunts them. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, who are you going to call? This is Act Two, yeah. right? Something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Let's do this. So let's talk about ghosts and uh, and spirits from a Jewish perspective. All right. So question number one: What does Judaism say? The, the core question, of course, is what does Judaism say about ghosts? and spirits, and dip books, and all these things. Is it Baba Mises? Is it true? Is it legit? How does it work? Why does it work? Should it work? All right, so what we're going to do is, let me skip a few pages here. What we're going to do is, um, in order to understand uh, the realm of, the potential realm of ghosts and spirits, we need to look at what those are in the first place, which are, um, which are souls. So let's understand what a soul is, and then we can figure out what's the deal with ghosts and spirits. So let's start with souls. Um, The first thing we're going to encounter is the verse that talks about the creation of Adam, how God created Adam uh, at the beginning of the second chapter of Genesis. Tracy, if you don't mind, please read text 14. It's on page 132, um, and it is the caption there is the first human, page 132, text 14. Yeah, does it say God formed the human? Yep. Uh, thank you. 
God formed the human of soil from the earth and breathed into his nostrils on the shama of life. And the human being became a living being. So what's interesting is the com thank you. The commentaries asked the question, what does it mean that God breathed into his nostrils in his shama of life? It seems a very bizarre. We we've heard that a thousand times. God breathed into his nostrils his soul. But what does that mean, breathed? It, it says this by no other beings does it use this expression of breathing into um, into in, um, um, into his nostrils a breath of life. What does that mean? So uh, the mystics explain that there's talking and there's blowing. What's the difference? A person can talk and talk and talk and talk. And you can keep on talking. But if you exhale with force, what happens is you're out of breath. And you need to take it. I know when you talk, you also have to keep on breathing. I, I know, it's, it's true. But when you, when you expend or expel the breath inside of you, it's almost like the, the, the innermost, you know, the, the oxygen or whatever it is, the air, the breath in your lungs is being poured out. So when it says that God breathed the soul into Adam's nostrils, it means that it's coming from the deepest depths of God himself and that core essence energy and, 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 and life of God is being breathed, blown into the nostrils, into the being of Adam, which tells us one thing. Long story short, here's the takeaway. The takeaway is, um, oh, confirmed. It does have a double box in Vegas. Oh. Yeah, confirmed. Absolutely confirmed. <laughs> um, so, uh, so getting back here. So, oh, so what's the takeaway? The takeaway is one thing. Unlike the body, which is temporal, i.e., um, finite or um, mortal, the soul is immortal. The soul is eternal. The soul is non-temporal. The soul exists forever. Why? Because it, it's, it comes from God. Just like God, the way we understand God. God is life itself. Nothing created God. God just is. God is life. So to the soul, which is the breath of God from the depths of God's being, so to the soul is likewise immortal. This is stated clearly in the Chizkuni. Joanne, please read this one. Um, if you will text 15 on page 133. This is, thank you, this is such an important truth about life. You see, life as we know it is the composite of soul and body. There's a body and there's a soul. But these two parts, these partners in, in, in our life, these two partners are very different. The body is the recipient and the soul is the source. I mean, God is obviously the source, but in that relationship, the soul is what's powering the body. Think of it as a glove, right? Imagine you put on a glove and now you're moving your hands. Right? So now you move, you move your hand and the fingers are moving with the glove on. The glove's not moving. Okay, the glove is moving. But the glove doesn't have its own ability to move. If you took your hand out of the glove, it's not like it's moving unless it's the Adams family. What was that glove? What was that hand? Am I, what was it called? Hand? Thing. Thing. Bum, bum. All right. Wow. Good. Good, Matt. Oh, I haven't seen that. Is that good? Yeah, it's very good. Everyone's talking about it. 
All right, so getting back to, oh, that's great. So imagine a hand, sorry, imagine the glove without a hand. It's not doing anything. Imagine a body, unfortunately, we don't have to imagine, right? A body without a soul, it also doesn't move and doesn't, doesn't it's not animated anymore. It's dead. It's, yeah, it's no longer, no longer alive. Does that mean that the person's life is gone? No, the soul, which was always the life of the person, it's like when, when, I wish I had a glove here as a prop. If I put on a glove, right, and I'm moving, is, does the glove ever become really alive? No, it's just moving as long as the hand is moving. When I, when I separate the two, the glove is on the table, and my, and my hand is still doing its thing. What we look at life is, again, the soul in a body, and it's moving. Imagine, another way to imagine it is like a great, a great analogy for this is like a spacesuit. If you're an astronaut, out in, you know, in an, um, you're going on a space mission. So a human being can't survive without, without a suit. So you put on a suit, and now with a suit, you can move around and you can function, right? So the soul can't function in this world without a suit because the soul is too spiritual for this world. How can a soul give charity? How can a soul, you know, cook food for someone in need? How can a soul share love or speak words? The soul can't do any of that. So the soul slips into a space suit, which is the body, as long as it has its mission here on earth to, to do those sorts of things, once that mission is over, the soul slips out of that spacesuit. The spacesuit remains inert, unmoving. It just, you know, this suit. But the real essence, the real life of, of the person, the soul, remains forever. So what happens to the soul? The body, we know, we lay it to rest. But what, what, what is the next stage of the journey of the soul? So Judaism has a very specific understanding of what happens to the soul once it uncouples from the body. If you don't mind, please turn to page 134. And here, here's another infographic. It's very cool how the JLI books now have this, these kind of like artistic, you know, like uh, depictions of things. I, I, we're not going to read every word here. <laughs> that's, that's sure not happening. I'll give you the, high, the, the, you know, the, the main ideas over here. Number one, after the soul separates from the body, the soul um, ultimately, ideally, transitions into what we call Gan Eden, which is paradise, or alternatively called the world to come, Olam Haba, the next world. Don't they hang out somewhere? Before that, so we'll get there. So that's the destination. However, so some souls can go seamlessly from being in a body to being in the spiritual paradise, but that's the very rare exception. Most souls, when I say most, I mean 99.9, keep on going with the nines. Most souls need a stage in between. We call this stage Gehinnom. Gehinnom is translated as purgatory. Now, it's what, what the world thinks of as hell, and I made a joke before about hell, what the world thinks about hell is not exactly what purgatory is in the Jewish understanding. Purgatory, it comes from the, from, from the word purge. What does purge mean? Get to get rid of. Which means like this, very simple. A soul having spent decades on earth in a body even though the soul is perfectly pristine and spiritual, but you know when you hang out in a certain environment for so long, you inevitably get some of the residue. So for example, if you go to, I don't know, what's a good example? If you go to a, a tobacco shop, I don't know why I'm going to a tobacco shop, whatever, but if you're going to a tobacco shop and you don't even do, you don't smoke anything, but you walk out, it's gonna be in your clothes until you launder it, until you have to wash it out, right? You have to wash it out. So purgatory, Gehinnom, is literally the, the cleansing, I don't know the cleansing, the, the dusting 
or sometimes it requires a more of a, remember the old machines? I don't know old machines. We now have like one of those front loaders. I don't know how they work. But remember the old ones had what, remember that thing that turned back and forth? Agitator. Agitator, it was called an agitator. So sometimes you need a little agitation that happens. It's not the most comfortable experience for the soul, but it's necessary to release the soul of its um, earthly, I don't know, schmutz, we would say in, in, in Yiddish, of its earthly um, grime or dust or even fragrance so that it's ready to go into, into Gan Eden. So that's what Gehinnom is. That's what purgatory is. Now, what happens? I'm going through different scenarios. What happens? So in an ideal state, it would go straight to Gan Eden. In a less than ideal state, but a more realistic state, it's got to spend some time in Gehinnom. Oh, one more thing. The, ma- the Talmud says the maximum time that the soul can spend in Gehinnom is 12 months for the wicked, which is why we only say Kaddish for 11 months, because we do not want to assume that our loved one required the full 12 months. You with me on that? Again, it says the max for the wicked is 12 months, so we do 11 months in one day. So we're in the 12th month, just in case it needs more time than less, but we definitely do not want to go all 12, because that's basically saying that they were they needed all that. Uh, well, consult your local rabbi. <laughs> I don't know. But that's the custom. The custom would go 11 months in a day. Um, Okay, now what happens if the soul has some unfinished business? Every soul has its, has its mission. What if, for whatever reason, the soul was separated from the body, i.e. death, but the soul, you know, on some level, still has not fulfilled all of its uh, 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 areas of purpose and mission and has still sparks that it needs to kind of interact with? Sorry? Yes, reincarnation. What is reincarnation? Just for, to clarify this, reincarnation is not like the Eastern, Jewish understanding of reincarnation is different than the Eastern uh, version, where Eastern version is that the same soul goes into different bodies multiple times. Um, the Jewish notion is different. It's basically like a candle where you light, uh, what, imagine a Hanukkah menorah or Shabbat candles, whatever, where you have one flame and then you light another candle, now you have two flames. So the soul ignites another or helps generate another soul that's referred to in Kabbalah as a branch soul. Think of a tree that has like a main branch and then you have another branch coming out of that branch. So if a soul didn't finish its mission, it's um, a, a new soul is generated from that soul that carries the rest of that unfinished business, unfinished mission from the original soul and has its own stuff to do, but that way the original soul can have rest in Gan Eden while its mission is carried on by a... Kind of like a cutting from a plant. Exactly. Uh, from the offshoot. It's literally called yes. an offshoot soul. Okay. That's the Jewish understanding of reincarnation. Okay. Not the same soul recycled, but rather branches and offshoots. Okay, now let's continue. What happens if it doesn't need a full reincarnation? What if there's like one or two things that it, that it missed that it needs to, to, for its perfection? So there's something called ibor. Ibor literally means pregnancy. What it means is that the soul will come back and go into someone else who's going to do that mitzvah and go along for the ride and have, it's almost like a dibuk, but in a, like but in, it's almost like possession, but it's not taking over. It's going along for the ride. It's called pregnancy because, like pregnancy, 
the, the fetus is along for the ride. Wherever the mother goes, that's where right? what the mother eats, the mother's experience is also being filtered to the child, to the, to the, to the fetus. So too, in this case, the Eber soul, the, the preg, uh, whatever, the soul that's attaching to the other, to the other soul, to the other person, um, is along for the ride to make it up. Sometimes also that is done to help give a spiritual boost to that other person. Would you know if that happened to you? Would you know if you were being... Um, it's not like a parasite. That's too negative. Would you know that if you were the host? Right. If you were the host of another soul, I don't know. Probably maybe, not. Maybe if you're compelled to go do a good deed. Maybe, and that's what it needed. So yeah. it needs a physical, right? It needs a physical maybe body to help facilitate. Deed. You may, might be, so if you get inspired, man, yeah. it's good. Do I get points too for Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, all of this stuff, all of the stuff that I'm saying, it's okay. all here on this page, yeah. and you can do further reading after the class. Yeah. That is brought down in certain uh, certain books as a potential understanding of why one would why you know for example a child would pass away because they only had a little bit it was like a reincarnation it only had a little bit there's a story of the Baal Shem Tov where he told parents that. I would be, I, you know, you need someone on that caliber to be able to see what's going on. I can just tell you what, what has been said at some points in time, but that's, I certainly could not, you know, speak specifically about any. Well, I, think, I, think, I think it's so hard when it's a child. Not that it's yeah. not hard all the time, but I right. you know with a child, um, um, you just, I had a nephew who died in just freaky accident mm. when he was five years old. Uh-huh. And, I just never could make sense out of it. And the only, you know, that's why I'm always grasping at things yeah. like that. And that kind of does make sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. But I tell my grandma all the time that um, good thing only the good die young. He's not right. seven. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's so mean she'll be around forever. <laughs> now, what, but there's one more scenario. There's one more scenario. What if the soul, for whatever reason, can't even make it into Gehenna? Into the purgatory, into the washing machine. Yeah. It's that, it's that, like, it's that stuck. Can't even get it in. You ever, like, need to wash a big blanket and you're like, I can't, this doesn't even fit into my machine. Got to go to the dry cleaners. That's the one scenario where the soul is stuck. So is that when it haunts people? That's the one scenario that's brought down in the books where it could, where it could, let's see it in text 18. Let's see it in text 18. Um, Claire, you up to reading this one? Page 136 where it says the wandering soul. Yeah, we brought out the, <laughs> the, the equipment, yeah. Spirit then talks, but within the body, and you respond to any question 
asthma. And then order it to leave the body. Sometimes it is necessary to blow the shelter near the affected person's ear. Thank you. I will tell you, this is from Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the primary student of the Arizal. So he wrote a lot of legit books. Uh, this is clearly not a typical situation. He's literally describing a Jewish mystical exorcism. Literally, a dibuk, which means a, ha a spirit haunting another person, a soul that wasn't able to even start the process of the cleansing to then elevate, so it's stuck. And then it, it, I don't know if it has no choice, but then it chooses, or I don't know, however, it goes into someone else and it haunts them, they're having seizures. And he describes this, this, this exorcism, this Jewish exorcism. But again, this is not mainstream stuff. This does not happen commonly. This is ex exceptionally scarce. And um, especially in modern times, there is essentially, no, I mean, basically no reason to worry about this. But just because we're discussing the topic, just so you know, it's brought down in sources that it could happen and has happened. So there you go. There's also a crazy story. I can't even, it's a long story about a, a dibuk, uh, um, the spirit from, or the ghost of one of the Jews who killed the prophet, pro, the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah the prophet. He was the prophet in the end, end of the first temple era who was telling the people, you gotta, you gotta shape up or God's gonna destroy the temple. And to stop him from saying that, Jews killed him. He was the guy trying to rally the troops and they killed him to stop the messenger. And so apparently one of these guys, so the story goes, I'm going to tell the story. Anyway, so, so a bunch of guys come, come to the author, to the, he's the founder of Chabad. And they say, we got this guy who is suddenly out of nowhere, seems like he's possessed. So the author, so they sit him down at the table. The author says the story. Though, and he says this, those that killed, the Jews that killed Zechariah Hanavi, Zechariah the prophet, did so with good intentions. What does it mean? They killed a prophet of God. They killed Because they knew that a prophecy, once it's uttered, you can't take it back. So they wanted to stop him from uttering. They, were, they did not want to hear the message of repentance, etc., of tshuva, but they wanted him to stop putting out the negative energy into the world, so they had good intentions. And with that, the person who had gone, uh, who had been possessed, that spirit left. And apparently the story is that that guy was possessed by one of the, by the souls of one of the guys that participated in that murder that had been hovering around the earth for thousands of years. And it, and it went into this guy and had possessed him. But when the altar of found an excuse for this guy's actions, it was still murder, but he said, but it came from at least, there's a way to understand it, that it, there was a positive intention that was able, it was able to ascend and then go into Gehenna and then go through with the process. So that's, again, another example of an exorcism in another way. Um, there's a third part of the, there's a second part to that story that I will not tell now, but maybe after, because it's a very long piece. All right, but anyway, back, back to this. So what we see here is we talked about angels, we talked about demons, we talked about ghosts and spirits and souls. Um, what about, what about, oh, uh, let's do, okay, we're going to do a few things very quickly. A few things very quickly. What about waking the dead? Seances and mediums, communicating with the dead. No, huh? Right, correct. What are the right? The souls of the deceased. Good, good clarification. Is it a Jewish thing and not Jewish thing? Is it possible? Is it not possible? So I'm going to go through this very quickly, and I'll, I'm going to uh, kind of paraphrase the text. Text 17a, the Torah says, "Don't 
do the practice of Ov. What is Ov? 17b, Rambam says, Ov is essentially conjuring up spirits of the deceased. So we have a biblical prohibition against doing that. Now, is that a real thing or is it imagination? We have this wild story from the book of Samuel. I'll tell it to you very quickly again. This is text 18 outside. King Saul, toward the end of his reign, King Saul, um, this, so he always had a prophet that would guide him. The prophet, he was the king, but he had a spiritual guru, Samuel, Shmuel, Hanavi, Samuel the prophet. Well, Samuel dies. And now it's just Saul. And Saul was get his, the Jews were getting attacked by the Philistines, by the Pelishtim, as had been going on for decades, um, uh, even at that point, probably centuries even. And, um, and King Saul did not know who to turn to. So he went to a woman who practiced uh, calling upon spirits, uh, a medium, a medium. So she, he consults a medium. Now that was illegal because he had made it, he was the king, he had made it illegal. So he dressed up as not the king and he asked her. And so she's like, well, keep it on the down low. And she's like, well, who do you want to call? And he's like, Samuel. And she's like, oh, I don't know about that. Anyway, it's a funny, it's not funny, but it's like a very interesting story. But apparently Samuel gets uh, communicated with and he says to, to the king, he's like, why did you bother me? I mean, the exact quote is, why did you consult me now that God has departed from you and become the support of your rival? That was King David. Your David wasn't king yet. God has done what he predicted through me. He has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your fellow, to David. So basically he said, why are you disturbing me? I was about to finish my round of golf. I don't know, whatever he was doing. And like, now you're bothering me. Um, and anyway, there's no hope for you. So you're, you're a goner anyway, and David's going to become the king, so might as well give up. But anyway, the point is that it seems that this is a... Uh, it, it's, it's conceptually a legitimate practice to be able to consult with the souls of the, of the deceased, but just we're not supposed to do it based on the Torah's prohibition, um, even though Saul here violated that, but whatever, that was, that was not kosher, not so kosher. Um, there are some, expl- uh, text 19, it's not really um, consulting the dead, it doesn't really work, whatever. Um, the last thing I want to say, not the last thing, but the second to last thing I want to say is, regarding communicating with the deceased. We have our own, we have a Jewish way to communicate with the deceased, and that is through visiting the gravesite and praying at the graves of our loved ones, or visiting and communicating. Um, the Kabbalah speaks, uh, Kabbalah teaches that the soul has five dimensions. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, and Yechida. The Nefesh, and they exist in different spaces. Nefesh, when a person passes away, that part of the soul, the lowest part, remains in the cemetery. So when we visit the cemetery, so the nefesh that's there, we interact with that, and then it calls upon the other layers of the soul that are on higher planes of reality, and that can bring down blessing and, and goodness for all of us. All of this, what I just told you, is text 20. Text 20 on page 144. It says the nefesh remains present in the grave, um, etc. So it can, it can advocate for us. It can, it can trigger the other layers of the soul on high when we go visit it. So this is the, the Jewish way to consult the consult with our with with the souls of our loved ones is not through a medium but directly through the gravesite um through uh um through um studying torah in their honor doing mitzvot in their honor etc these are ways to elevate the soul of our loved ones i love this quote i'll read it very quickly text 21 from rabbi rabbi uh, Rabbi aron of karlin the karliner rebbe he writes the following page 145 when children say kaddish for their father or mother it's like sending regards. When they learn a chapter of Mishnah on their behalf, it's like sending them a letter. 
And when they fulfill mitzvot and good deeds for the benefit of a soul, it is like sending them an entire package. So there's different levels on which we can benefit and connect with the souls of our loved ones and uh, depending on what we do. Now, the last piece of today's class is about extraterrestrials. And I have a video to show if you will indulge me for just a few minutes. Um, here's a video about the Jewish perspective on extraterrestrial life. Hold on, not Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> it's one of these smart projectors, so they're, like they're feeding you whatever ads they want you to boost your credit score. All right, here we go. Search new. Oh, come on, we had it up before. No, it's, it's in this channel, but where am I going to find it? No, this is not going to work. I'm going to have to type. Oh, here it is, Torah Center. Ta-da. Ta-da, ta-da. So it's this video. That's it, right here. Thank you. Humans are curious. Gazing into dark skies to inspect at shiny objects has been a fact of life for as long as human life existed. But what about those planets and galaxies? Does any life exist there? Is there anything out there on any planet, anywhere, staring in our direction and dreaming? Jews love questions, and this one was presented on several occasions to Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, known simply as the Rebbe whose knowledge of both Torah and scientific sources was truly remarkable. The Rebbe insisted that Judaism does not rule out the chance that life may exist elsewhere, and that classic Jewish sources are divided as to whether such life actually exists. But when it comes to the purpose for which God created the cosmos, planet Earth is unique. Only its human inhabitants received a Torah from God, and only they have the capacity for free choice. So. Is there life on Mars? Perhaps. But there are certainly no synagogues. In the early 1960s, a leading Jewish scientist, Professor Velvel Green, worked for NASA's Planetary Quarantine Division. He asked for the Rebbe's opinion on his exobiology program that was seeking signs of life on other planets. I said, you know, there are those, and I used the word, there are those of your followers who say that the Jews should not be working in the space biology program, the exobiology program, because it goes contrary to Torah. The Rebbe stopped one of those beautiful moments in time. He didn't smile. And he just thought. And then he came back with this and he said as follows, exactly the way I'm doing it. He pointed at me. And he was saying this in Yiddish. You should look for life on Mars. I should keep looking, keep looking for life on Mars. And if you don't find it, keep looking elsewhere and elsewhere and keep looking. Because to sit here in this world and you say there is no life elsewhere is to put a limit around what God can do. And that nobody can do. Now the Rebbe didn't say there was life on Mars. The Rebbe just said that the job of a scientist who is trained in that profession is to keep looking for it. But not everyone receives such a response from the Rebbe. 
1978, a similar question was posed by a young Jewish man living in Milan, Italy. He and his friends had been debating the question of extraterrestrial life, and they turned to the Rebbe to inquire about the Torah's perspective. The Rebbe wrote back, but his reply was as distant from his response to Professor Green as the Earth is from Mars. He advised the questioner that although nothing in Judaism negates the possibility of extraterrestrial life, it was not advisable for him to be spending time investigating the question. Instead, he should focus on the terrestrial life surrounding him. I must admit that I answered your question without great enthusiasm. This is like a scenario in which we face a dangerously ill patient or a burning house, and instead of trying to save the patient or extinguish the fire, we deliberate profound theoretical questions about the cosmos. Such inquiries won't do a thing to help the patient or extinguish the fire. Similarly, today's Jewish youth are seeking direction. They are missing the path of Torah and its commandments, which is the path of true life. And this crisis is not happening somewhere in the heavens, amid the planets, nor in a remote corner of the earth, but rather in the immediate vicinity of you and your friends in Milan. And it is a matter of vital importance. God promises us that when we truly exert ourselves in this regard, we will succeed. Two different individuals, two very different responses. So is there extraterrestrial life? Well, it seems that if you're a professional scientist with your head in space, advance science, discover more of God's wonders. But if you belong to the rest of humanity, seek life on Earth. Work tirelessly to enhance it and create wonders here for others. Nice. Very cute. What's clear is that the Rebbe did not, um, did not say that uh, it's not a Jewish belief or whatever. He was just telling this in the second letter. I think they, I think they got it mostly the way I would explain it. The second letter was kind of like, there's a lot of work to do. Like, it's a good question, but like, let's take care of stuff that we need to take care of. All right, so that takes us to the end of today's session and to the end of, uh, and to the end of, uh, of this course, which is, um, which is again, bittersweet. I mean, we accomplished a lot, we studied a lot, but this, uh, this, this, is, the, this is the grand finale. So throughout this, these four sessions, we looked at dreams, we looked at astrology, we looked at jinxes, and the evil eye, and today we looked at alternative life forms, like angels, demons, ghost spirits, and even extraterrestrials. And the common denominator, if you think about all the, all the lessons, it's that while these forces and phenomena, while they may have certain elements of ability and functionality, at the end of the day, God is still and always in control. That's Judaism 101, that's monotheism 101. If we want access, we know what to do. Plug in, connect, and never fear the unknown. Why? Because God is in charge and God's got this. So here's my wish for all of you. May all your dreams be for a blessing. May your star shine ever brightly. May you always bless and be blessed. And may you have the vision to see the angels in your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining for Supernatural. Thank you so much. Okay.
Uh, quick, a few quick announcements. So number one, in no particular order, but just the stuff that I'm looking at right now. Next Wednesday evening, we have a remarkable event, a live event with Rabbi Levi Weinberg, who will be joining us. He will be, he's flying in from South Africa. Um, his son lives in Dunwoody now. He's the Chabad Rabbi in Dunwoody. But the father, Rabbi Levi Weinberg, will be joining us uh, Wednesday night to speak about Torah in 23, i.e. 2023. What are Torah's messages for a very modern world with all of the modern challenges that we face? Now, the other page that I have in front of you is the description of the three JLI courses for next year. JLI courses are the like what we did here with the, with the textbooks. Um, we have three incredible courses and an incredible deal. You can look at the deal, or I could mention the deal. It's usually 100 for the course, but today only, or with this, with this paper, just put down your name and email address. We'll get you in for the incredible deal of 250 for all three courses. What a deal. What a mitzia. No, you can't really. It's, uh, it's a great deal, but it's a, it's a great way to commit to Torah learning in the upcoming year. Now, I mentioned this before we started, to, to those of you that were here then, that we are going to launch some additional courses in between. These are, these are the, the JLI courses that is coming from, from headquarters from, uh, from JLI Central in Brooklyn. We are going to be, I will be launching some additional courses throughout the next few months, sp- uh, uh, summer and into the early fall before the, before the high holidays. So stay tuned for those details and uh, hopefully we'll have the similar time and, and similar setup so that you'll join and we'll continue the learning Are going. Are you teaching these courses? Yes, I'll be teaching these courses. Um, let me think. So I mentioned Torah in 23. Um, I mentioned the uh, summer series of classes. I mentioned the trifecta, which you have in front of you. Okay, a few more things. Number, uh, no particular order. Shavuot night learning. In addition to this event, which is going to be on Wednesday night, Thursday night, we have an, a night of learning starting at 11.30 p.m. This is not this Thursday, but a week from Thursday. This will be May 25th. Come out for TED Talks and roundtable learning. It's going to be a lot of fun on Shavuot and, and great learning with great refreshments, um, etc. In addition, we also have um, an event marking the 29th yard site of the Rebbe that's coming up next month. Stay tuned for details um, on that. And we also will be bringing down uh, to Atlanta a Holocaust survivor, survivor from Auschwitz, to share her story in, um, in August, at the end of the, late August. Um, and she is known as the Honey Girl of Auschwitz. So join us for that. Take a look for more details as, that, uh, as we put out the details of location and date. And it's going to be a celebration of Jewish... Um, a Jewish life and Jewish survival and a Jewish future. Very special evening. All right. That's all the news that's fit Thank to print. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Thank you all for joining. And it's, uh, it's been amazing. Hope to see you guys soon. Um, if, you, if you're interested in signing up for these courses, just put down your name and email and just leave it over here. And I'll make sure to follow up at some point and we'll get you in on it. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Give me one second. Fran, it's great to see you. Be well. It's good to see you in uh, in the garb. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Oh wow! Wow. Got it. All right. Well, send sending blessings and, and good news and hopes for good news. We'll see you soon. Take care. All right, bye.
The what? The shoe. I had to put the shoe on his face. Oof. 